From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can artificial intelligence make supply chains sustainable? How California's green grid geeks are fighting to keep climate action alive and well. Can chief resilient officers be, well, resilient? And how Procter & Gamble and Unilever are easing the rising tide of ocean plastics pollution. It's a sea change this week on 350. It's January 27th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, is Lauren Hepler, senior writer. Hey, Lauren. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the fun never stops. There's so much going on. Uh, as, yeah. you, as you well know, uh, we're putting the finishing touches on the 10th annual State of Green Business report coming out next Tuesday, January 31st, out of the a webcast starring, uh, not starring, uh, featuring <laughs> Rich Madison, the CEO of TrueCost, which is now a uh, unit of uh, S and, uh, Standard & Poor's, uh, our own uh, John Davies, Vice President, Senior Analyst, and uh, yours truly. We're going to be talking about the 10 trends for 2017, as well as uh, the index, which is about 20 metrics uh, provided by TrueCost about the state of green business in the U.S. and globally, looking at uh, thousands of companies and how they are uh, collectively making progress or not. Yeah, there's always tons of information in there and lots of grist for future stories. I know we'll get into a couple of the topics in just a minute. But so this week, I know we're also in the last rotation of our Green Biz Executive Network. Where are you off to? Well, this week's uh, was uh, here at Homegrown. Uh, we we were in um, uh, San Francisco at Adobe headquarters, Adobe's uh, San Francisco headquarters, and continuing the conversations that we've been having about uh, employee engagement. How is employee engagement still relevant when it comes to sustainability? Some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, renewable energy procurement and how that's changing the the crazy world of power purchase agreements and virtual power purchase agreements and and lots and lots of permutations and different financing mechanisms that companies are using to ramp up the use of renewable energy and so many other things you get 20 or 25 companies from across the economy railroads airlines banks media companies tech companies food companies uh, and on and on talking about uh, their sustainability journeys and the challenges and opportunities and successes and achievements. It's just a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I know you guys have also been doing sort of informal surveys on how everybody's reacting to Trump as president officially as of last week. So I'll be curious to get a debrief on that, especially with the, the gag orders coming down from the EPA. Lots of stuff going on there, pipelines coming back in the news. So lots that we'll be watching closely. But for now, let's jump into the Week in Review. First of all, I think we have to call attention to this. Uh, I think we now have four parts of a six-part series 
uh, or on, on California's Grid Geeks uh, by Greg Staples, uh, environmental lawyer based in D.C. And in, and in California, just a really amazing, in-depth, fascinating look at how the state of California, the Republic of California, if you will, is holding the line on its climate and energy um, leadership, the bold, uh, sometimes uh, always ambitious, sometimes audacious goals that the state has set around carbon reductions, uh, energy efficiency, renewable energy procurement, um, and how all that works with the the state's grid in what is uh, the sixth largest economy. So uh, we've talked about that last week. Uh, check it out. There's, I think we've published four this week and probably a couple next week uh, of the six-part series. So just check that out. And from Grid Geeks to Green Bonds, our East Coast correspondent, reporter Keith Larson, who's based out in North Carolina, took a look this week at why green bonds are reaching record highs. This is a topic we've been following as big-name companies like Apple issue uh, increasingly large green bonds, and countries like Poland issued the world's first sovereign green bonds. So lots of things to watch, whether you're in the finance world or if you're in the corporate sector. But Joel, I know this is a space you've also been tracking for a while. Uh, yeah, and this is one of the things that we'll be looking at, uh, and we did look at uh, this year's State of Green Business Report, uh, not just the growth of green bonds and how they've uh, really taken off quite nicely, but also uh, the greenhouse gas emissions reductions resulting from green bonds financing. In other words, uh, all of these green bonds go towards some kinds of uh, energy or renewable energy or efficiency kinds of initiatives, uh, given a certain, you know, as, assuming a certain price per ton of carbon dioxide equivalents. Uh, how much would this change? How much would these investments actually reduce? Uh, in terms of carbon emissions. No one's ever done that before. We've got some data coming up next week in the 2017 State of Green Business Report. Mm, definitely something to check out. And in terms of sort of the size of the green bond market, Keith was reporting on a recent Moody's Investor Services report that showed that the market for green bonds is expected to increase to over $200 billion, with a B, dollars in 2017, which would be an increase from $93 billion in 2016 if green bonds grow at their current rate. Uh, but one interesting finding was actually that U.S. corporates are lagging behind their peers. Um, so there's an interesting chart. We'll link to the story uh, in our show notes this week. But the, the first green bond was issued back by the World Bank and the European Investment Bank in 2007. So we've had now almost 10 years to sort of watch the space evolve. Um, and it, there's been sort of not not that hockey stick growth. It's been a little up and down. And while companies like Apple have announced that they would issue a 1.5 billion green bond to finance uh, a whole variety of projects last year, the question is sort of um, how you expand beyond that. Toyota has also been in this space and uh, get other companies sort of in the fold. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what impact, positive or negative, uh, that the Trump administration has on this is as. Uh, they pull back from climate and energy uh, initiatives, at least the renewable kind, um, and uh, also start to invest in infrastructure. Uh, you know, how will this have a positive impact by uh, getting companies to put up more money since it's not going to be coming from the federal government to invest in some of these things that have, frankly, attractive returns on investment, 
uh, or will it dampen that? Uh, will the push for infrastructure uh, open up markets for new kinds of projects? Uh, will infrastructure include uh, the grid and greening the grid and, and uh, wind farms and, and other things or other green infrastructure? Um, this will be an interesting thing to watch how this is the politics of the day affect these financial markets. That's particularly true since Keith notes that China is actually out ahead right now. Um, according to this Moody's report, China-based green bond issuers accounted for a full 35% of the world's green bonds with nearly $32.9 billion in this field already. Yeah. So definitely something to watch internationally. Yeah, I think China is going to be increasingly eating our green lunch uh, on renewables <laughs> and so many other things. Uh, this is going to be just a really, really interesting story to continue watching. Speaking of airing our dirty laundry, uh, let's talk about what Procter & Gamble and Unilever are up to around ocean plastics. This is a really interesting story that really addresses a couple of different things. One is cutting pollution. Uh, in the oceans, you know, we saw some data last year from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that uh, I believe said that by well, certainly by a certain year, maybe 2030, there would be more plastic in the ocean than fish. I think that's by weight. That's just scary. Uh, but uh, beyond that is how do we turn these into new materials? How do we close the loop, the circular economy and all of that in terms of harvesting uh Ocean's plastics for supply chains, and that seems to be what Procter and Gamble uh, and Unilever, among some other companies, are now doing. Definitely, like you've alluded to, we've all seen the pictures of sort of these vast wastelands of, of garbage floating in the ocean. But the question now is really how that discarded material can effectively be captured first and then processed uh, to be put back into meaningful use. It's sort of an interesting node. On, in this conversation about the circular economy, sort of pushing recycling to the next level to keep materials circulating through supply chains. Um, and plastics is just for some context in terms of how massive the scope is here. Plastic production grew from 15 million tons in 1964 to 311 million tons in 2014. So this is definitely one of those exponential fields. The issue that our associate editor Anya Holomizer was looking at this week was how companies like PNG are working with experts in in the field of, of recycling and waste TerraCycle and Suez to figure out new ways to wash process the plastic that's pulled from the ocean. It doesn't sound super sexy, but it really is sort of one of those essential links to, to figure out broader solutions for, for reuse and recycling. And it wasn't that long ago that doing this kind of thing was was kind of a gimmick. I remember when when Methods co-founders, I had them on stage at a, a State of Green Business Forum, well now what's called Green Biz, um, conference about five years ago in San Francisco, and they pulled out a bottle of uh, one of their method products that was a container made from ocean plastic. And it was kind of a gimmick. They never really scaled that to my knowledge. But this is not a gimmick. This is truly uh, a trend in the making. In fact, it, it relates very much to one of the trends in next week's Data Green Business Report. Had I plugged that yet, by the way? I can't remember. Um, <laughs> I know, plugging relentlessly. And in fact, we'll be talking about this at um, Green Biz 17 next month in uh, in Phoenix. So we'll have Andrew Morlay, the chief executive of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The, the story that, that Anya did this week is about a report uh, called The New Plastics Economy that came out of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that was... Uh, 
released at Davos uh, recently and looks at, at plans to to how do you increase plastics recycling to 70% in three years uh, from a relatively small percent these days. Um, and so that's a really ambitious plan. And this is, you know, how do we turn this liability, this pollutant into a new supply chain uh, material and really create those material flows? Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And to drill down into that, P&G announced that they're, they're aiming to use these materials for shampoo bottles, actually. So this isn't kind of to your point, Joel, it's not a niche product. I also think of the classic example, the Adidas running shoes that were made with plastic that was pulled out of the ocean, I think last year. Um, But so in this case, they're actually talking about their regular bottles that you'll find on the shelves and in stores all over the world containing at least 25% beach plastic. And that's part of P&G's broader goal to create half a billion hair hair product bottles made with recycled plastic every year by 2018. So again, the scale of this can all be a little mind boggling. And there's obviously sort of the percentages to watch, like how much of these materials can be recycled. There's still some technical challenges, some cost challenges working with 100% recycled materials. But I'm sure you can attest that's something that's sort of constantly changing. Absolutely. Well, let's move from low-tech to high-tech. And that uh, brings up a story that uh, senior writer Heather Clancy wrote this week uh, called Can Artificial Intelligence Make Supply Chain Sustainable? And Heather's piece has to do with some work coming out of the IT consulting firm Infosys that talks about how AI, artificial intelligence, will increasingly bring out the best in people in creativity, logical reasoning. And, And Heather looks at how this can apply to sustainability, to storytelling and reporting, uh, just keeping uh, companies better informed about what's going on. And at the risk of overplugging our State of Green Business Report next week, this is something that we write about. One of the trends that has to do with new technologies that uh, enable and enhance uh, corporate storytelling on sustainability, both AI, augmented reality, AR, and uh, virtual reality, and a number of other technologies uh, this is really something interesting to watch. That's for sure. And in this instance, Heather was focused on artificial intelligence technologies being used to automate data collection and processing. So you can think about things like machine learning software that sort of amass expertise, um, sort of like the the robo brain, if you want to get into that whole sci-fi side of all of this. But the idea is to analyze data and sort of neural networks that are modeled after the human brain, which obviously could have potential for things like the supply chain, where there's lots and lots of rote processes going on. But that raises maybe the biggest question about that field. Heather starts her piece off by nodding to it, saying that in Davos last week, there was a ton of conversation about AI and the future of work. So obviously, we know that there's a lot of anxiety about sort of job killing potential for these sorts of advanced technologies. And even IBM chairwoman and CEO Ginny Romady, in her remarks at Davos, said, history has taught us many things. When you have powerful technologies, you have a responsibility that they're introduced in the right way. So it seems like we're sort of getting to one of those points with AI where it's less theoretical and like, oh, this could be coming down the pike and more. How do you actually implement these things day to day? Yeah, these are markets that are in, in formation now. Uh, companies like SAP are, are you know, weighing in and starting to develop products and services where, uh, particularly around the data collection, how do you, uh, how do uh, 
individual companies start to use big data in ways that only larger institutions had been uh, accessible. And, and in the field of sustainability, once you're able to collect that kind of data, what do you know and what do you get to do differently as a result? And in terms of companies to watch in this space, France is Ecovadis, a company that plays in the supply chain technology space, just signed for its first outside funding about $32 million from an institutional investor called Partech Ventures. And they do specifically mention AI as an area that was a motivator for seeking out more capital to sort of grow their efforts. So I think this is something that whether you're working inside a company or you're a supplier, uh, definitely going to have to be staying on top of this one. We talk a lot about water on this show, but one story that our senior writer Heather Clancy recently undertook took a closer look at what a company called Cambrian is doing in terms of a water-as-a-service financing model. So Heather, uh, thanks you for joining us, first of all. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this. What's going on? First of all, what, what is Cambrian and what is their water-as-a-service model? So I've been watching this company for a couple of years. I wrote about them last time, maybe two or three years ago. And the thing that attracted me now is the fact that they've come out with a, well, first of all, what do they do? They have a system. It, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's like the size of a shipping container and it it recycles wastewater. So they take in the, the industrial wastewater or the, the agricultural wastewater in the case of many of their customers I'm going to talk about here. And they, they treat it. They recycle it so that it can be reused in various ways. And they also, at the same time, um, create biogas. So this thing called the EcoVault is a, a wastewater treatment system that generates power and recycled water. So that's the, the thing that they're selling. The interesting thing that's happening now is they've come up with a new way of of convincing customers to invest in it. And they're calling it a water as a service model. Actually, it's a WEPA. So it's Water Energy Purchase Agreement, or WEPA, if you prefer. And here's uh, the founder and CEO, Matt Silver, had this to say about the model. What this announcement is about is um, that we've now taken the next step from here and we've said, well, we know we've got a great product. We're now going to offer it not just as a product, but as a service to our customers. So similar to what uh, the um, what happened in the solar industry, where folks took a distributed renewable power technology and they offered it as a service via the power purchase agreement, we're doing uh, in the water space, taking a distributed renewable uh, product uh, in EcoVolt and offering it uh, through our water energy purchase agreement, uh, in which we will install the system. Uh, and finance it, and then sell the customer back clean water and clean energy. So it sounds like an interesting idea, just conceptually, but was this sort of driven internally, or was there actual market demand for sort of packaging Mm. the product this way? What I love about this is the fact that they 
listened to their potential customers. So Cambrian has been selling very uh, seriously into like the craft beer and winery sector, which it's not very, they're actually based in Boston, but they're out, a lot of their business is coming out of California. Um, and as they were going in and talking to prospective customers, they would, they would get, they would hear this sort of common refrain, Hey, we love this, but if you could install it and operate it, we'd be ready to go. We don't, we can't quite pay for it. You know, it's sort of the, the usual um, reluctance to engage with a a newer company. This company's 10 years old, still you know, not very well-known entity. So they took those comments and they went back and figured out a way of financing these systems and and came up with the models so that they could offer this sort of, it's essentially not really a lease. It's very similar to the, the power purchase agreements that that um, as Matt was, Matt Silver was saying, it lets someone invest in the technology over time. They get a return. They have clarity into what they're going to pay for it over time, and and they they understand the operational impact. So they listen to their customers, and I think it's very clever also because they're tapping into sort of the psyche of, of PPAs, organizations that are interested in sustainable business practices understand the term BPA now has become kind of, uh, it's not, you know, mainstream necessarily, but anyone involved with energy or uh, is, is familiar with the, the idea of a power purchase agreement. So why not apply it to water or water treatment options and so forth? So that was the sort of the aha moment. And they went out and hired a lot of financial experts uh, and people that were familiar with the incentive structures of, of, that, that, that they could tap into, no pun intended, in order to make this uh, more economical. And speaking of tapping in, uh, you mentioned that Cambrian has has customers in the beer business. And one of them that you pointed out in the story was Lagunitas, a really popular brewery out on mm-hmm. the West Coast that's now expanding nationally. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what, what they're doing and sort of how the this model works in practice for this company? Yeah. So this company is familiar with EcoVault. So they have they had the technology already. Um, and as they started thinking about expanding, they they thought, ooh, how can we use this in a different way? So they've actually signed a 20-year WEPA contract. So um, that's a long one. It, 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 Matt Silver says that these things will generally be more like a 10-year um, time frame. And they're at, over the course of that time, they hope to save $22.5 million, you know, compared to with it, how they would have had to traditionally do it. They, like Anitas is, 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 they're very willing to sign long-term contracts. I, I heard that they, they, they've signed one of the biggest contracts long-term for hops, for example. So they're, they're looking at this for other parts of their operational um, framework. But basically what they did was, was to look at the way of leveraging this over time they're tapping into the state incentives and so forth and tax tax breaks. Um, and, and the way that Cambrian does it is they look at each deal, right. Holistically. And they figure out, okay, the state, what's, what, what, um, benefits could they tap into in the state utility level? So some utilities offer, offer, um, incentives for, for investing in certain ways, uh, the federal tax credits. I, I don't know what'll happen to it now, but the U S EPA just, announced a new water infrastructure finance and innovation program. Um, it's a billion dollar credit vehicle. So, you know, it's, we'll have to see what happens under the new administration, but the, it does have that I word in it, right? Infrastructure, which is something that the Trump administration has said that they do plan to prioritize. So maybe this thing will stay in place, but basically uh, Cambrian looks at every single customer. They look at where they are. They look at what their, their financials are and they figure out how to make it work. 
Interesting. And so are incentives absolutely essential to the model or are they, they beneficial in some states? They're not, you know, it's, they're beneficial. Absolutely. But Matt Silver says they're not required to make the thing pay off. So they, they help, they help make it more attractive, especially at this time when, when um, you're trying to convince people that Cambrian innovation is, is a, is going to be here for the long term. But um, they can make it work without them as well. But to bring it full circle, here's uh, Matt Silver talking a little bit more about the, the financial thinking behind the model. Basically, every customer is different, and we're going to follow the customer's lead. Uh, with, but we do have a few constraints. The, only cons- the main constraints we have is that the length of the term needs to be at least long enough for us to monetize some of the incentives that we monetize when we own the plant. So one of the really cool parts of this model is that there's a whole host of tax incentives and, you know, carbon credits, renewable energy credits, things like accelerated depreciation, all of these things that you can do when you own a renewable asset. And um, under this model, we do it on behalf of the customer and we use it to keep their their operating costs down. Um, Now, in order to do that, we need to own the plant for at least a certain length of time. And it'll depend on which credits we're monetizing. <clears throat> and so there's a there's a minimum, but after that, uh, we can you know we can stick to that minimum or we can go longer. That's pretty interesting. And when you pan back for a second, what do we know about sort of how much financing Cambrian has at their disposal, being that they are technically startup, um, to sort of have some runway to get this idea off the ground? So I think you're going to see them continue to focus on innovative, smaller, you know, craft breweries, like, like we were just discussing, but they have gone out and, and, um, uh, put together a $30 million fund to help invest in the idea. So what they need that for is, is obviously in order to create the, the systems and get them up and running, um, until they, they have, they have the payoff. So it's more like a, you know, for Cambrian into, in order to, to, to finance its options. So, and be able to offer this until it gets to the point where something is a break even for them. So they, yeah, they went outside and, and put something together in late 2015. Mm-hmm. And definitely as a, an avid craft beer drinker, I'm very curious to see mm-hmm. how, how their work goes in that space. But I saw they initially had the backing of NASA. Are there other sectors or potential applications for their work? You know, I, one of the other uh, things I was looking at was a agricultural, uh, you know, framework. But the, the thing that's kind of interesting about these things, is they can be moved, right? So they are containers, so they can be moved around. If you think about it, if um, there was a problem or a disaster area, right, that needed um, cleanup, there could they could be used there, um, they could be you, a company could buy them and move them around as necessary. I mean, I'm sure it's not easy to move, but but the idea is that they can be, you know, they're shippable and movable, um, you know, over time. So, you know, I we, we haven't really talked about the, I didn't really talk to them about the long-term potential. They want to make sure that they get focused on this, but but um, they're trying. And it's, like I said, I think it's interesting that they're they're from Boston. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm thinking something on the East Coast might be in the in the near future. All right. Well, water as a service, definitely a model we will keep an eye on. Heather Clancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lauren. So, Lauren, you had a great story this week uh, about an organization we've written about uh, a number of times before and, in fact, had on stage at our events. Uh, 100 Resilient Cities is an organization originally funded by the Rockefeller Foundation to to uh, 
uh, we'll do what? You tell us about what 100 Resilient Cities and, and why you took the time to revisit them. For sure. So 100 Resilient Cities is a couple years old now, and the news peg for getting in touch now was that they've actually reached their full 100 cities. So they cover places not just in the U.S., like Atlanta and San Francisco, but into Europe with Barcelona and Belfast, Bangalore, India, Bangkok, Thailand, lots of bees. I'm guessing that wasn't intentional, but uh, you can check out their website for for more information. But the, the purpose of my conversation was really to figure out where to from here. Uh, One of the key things that the organization does is provide two years of funding for a new position within city governments called a chief resilience officer. So this is a person that's looking not just at climate risks, things like sea level rise, but how those risks interact with both long-term sort of stressors in an area like income inequality and the risk of acute shocks Um, in some places like out in California that would be earthquakes but obviously different geographic locations have different things to keep in mind. So over the last couple years they've been naming these cities they've now reached a hundred cities for which they now have chief resilience officers uh, and all around the world probably uh, maybe only a quarter of them in the United States. Uh, What happens now? One of the big areas of focus is putting these goals in writing. Some cities, uh, like those out our way, Oakland and Berkeley, have put out concrete strategies. But I did ask Michael Berkowitz, who's the executive director of 100 Resilient Cities, sort of where they are now. It feels great to reach uh, the 100 uh, for which we were named. Um, And yet, really, it's that's the tip of the iceberg, that in order to really help cities change themselves to become more livable, sustainable, resilient, um, that is the work of a generation of people in cities, you know, city government people, national leaders, institutions, businesses, civil society, right? It's, it's the only way cities actually do those things, create more diverse and equitable economies, more, um, you know, sustainable infrastructure, more cohesive communities, more integrated planning is the only way they do that is over time. Um, and so, you know, it's amazing to reach these cities. I think we chose a, a great group of, you know, 37 cities. We knew a lot more about what, you know, to look for in a city, What, where were the right opportunities. So the mistakes we made, in the first couple of years were ones hopefully we didn't repeat. We probably made new mistakes, but um, we, you know, we, we did a much better job selecting cities, I think. Um, and yet the other thing we're thinking about is how to, you know, continue to partner with cities as they both, in, you know, stand up the higher CROs and do strategies, but also as they, you know, the older ones implement uh, the initiatives that they outline in those strategies. And that if we can stay connected to those cities over the longer term, over, you know, not just a couple of years, but 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, that's where we can really help cities move the needle. Um, and we'll, we'll, you know, frankly, we'll, we'll see if we're able to do that for a bunch of reasons. You know, cities are dynamic. We're also, you know, thinking about how we make ourselves sustainable from a, a finance and revenue, you know, from a revenue uh, point of view. Um, so, you know, I'm not, it's not clear we're going to be able to do that, but it, it, it is um, something we're really thinking about. So where does this go from here? I mean, I imagine that the politics in America 
uh, has to be changing this a little bit, particularly since there's been this, uh, there, there seems to be this rollback in in climate action. There doesn't seem to be there is this uh, very overt rollback in in what the federal government at least wants to do with climate. Does that mean there's more emphasis on cities, or the cities are just aren't going to get the support? Well, what happens? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get to the the federal piece because that's really interesting. But I did want to note before that that really the the emphasis moving forward immediately is at the local level. So the way 100 Resilient Cities funds these chief resilience officer positions is by saying, hey, we'll give you financial support for two years to hire these people. But the question now in some of the cities that were brought on early in the process is what you do once you reach two years in. Um, so there are examples of cities that are starting to, I think he, Berkowitz said that in all of the cities where it's been an issue, just a handful so far, um, they have made appropriations to keep that person on. So switched over to public funding because they found it being worthwhile. Um, but sort of the question of, of not only how you fund staff positions, but also just sort of the, the, the manpower and, mental space you can dedicate to resilience are big questions. So here's a little more from Michael Berkowitz on that dynamic. We are reaching that point in all of the first wave cities this year or, or, you know, next year we're, we're in the process. We're in the process of that. We've reached it in about maybe I would say 15 cities already. And each of those 15, they have re um, appointed the CRO using their own city money. Um, so uh, that's heartening. That won't always happen, but it has happened uh, in, in the first city. And one of the things we did in, in cohort three, the one that we named this year, was to have those conversations with mayors um, and their staffs before we selected them. To say, we're going to give you two-year head start, but we fully expect that you will do you do you see this as be developing into a permanent part of your you know city administration? Um, so uh, we're and we're and we're doing that work, helping them plan for it, finding the budget lines, creating the offices, you know all of that. We're doing that earlier and earlier in our engagement because yeah, I mean this is we're trying to fundamentally change the way we govern cities that you wouldn't run a city without a chief resilience officer any more than you would without a chief of police. But also to follow up on your question about sort of the federal picture in all of this, obviously the Trump administration is signaling that federal climate policy is going to be sort of a question mark at best, uh, potentially even regressing in some areas. When I asked Michael Berkowitz sort of at a high level about what all of this means for 100 resilient cities, he said they're, they're trying to keep an optimistic tone, even though obviously things are fairly uncertain. Um, but, but in some sense, this really kind of drills home a theme they've been trying to get across since their launch, which is that the future is local. Um, in terms of money that can be spent, infrastructure projects that can be built, a lot of those decisions are made at the local level. Um, state and federal funding are obviously a big part of that in some circumstances. Uh, but I asked him sort of what cities can be doing now and what he's seeing in terms of early responses to the Trump presidency. National governments are moving in one direction and local and city governments are moving in another, right? And even before the elections, we've always said the great thing about working with cities is that mayors are innovative and largely um, not so partisan. 
um, that they focus on getting stuff done, um, uh, and it doesn't come with a you know a partisan label of one kind or another. Um, really, it's about you know the best ideas rise to the top and make it stick, and that's partly what you know we built this network around is having cities help other cities inspire other cities, um, and so I think. In some ways, that work feels more important than ever, but it's always felt important to me, um, and uh, uh, it feels good to be in that spot. Um, I think the second thing that we've been thinking a lot about is, you know, part of why resilience is so important is that it's explicitly inclusive. Um, it understands that a strong city or a region or, you know, you, know, you could expand that out even more, but more resilient cities are ones that explicitly and intentionally reach out to across their populations um, because they understand that when disaster strikes, um, that you know having citizenry that are bought in to what the mission, you know, to to what the city is trying to do, that trust their institutions. Um, that help each other, that have cohesive communities where neighbors check on neighbors. All of that is built on a basis of inclusivity. And so the act of inclusion is an important both, you know, demonstration of resilience, but also a way of building it. What we're trying to do with cities is help them organize and think about what their priorities are and what their opportunities are. Um, and I think that's going to be an advantage going into a new administration uh, which is clearly going to try to do things differently from the way the, the last one did. Um, and cities that are more organized and proactive may have an advantage to try to secure the funding and influence, and, and influence uh, policy agendas um, in a way that disorganized cities won't be. Um, and so I think our cities, particularly the older ones, um, are, are thinking about what their priorities are and what they're, you know, you know, both um, and how they can help shape national policy dialogue um, and 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 seek uh, funding uh, for for projects. So I, I don't think there's a, you know, there's not a one direction or another, but it's really trying to understand your cities needs, your regions needs, because as you better understand that, when the opportunities and risks, frankly, come up over the next year they'll be in a better place to articulate those. The role of city is obviously a big topic and one we'll continue to keep you updated on. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find links to the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to podcast director, Soraya Melconian. Be sure to register for next week's State of Green Business Report launch. That's January 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget that GreenBiz 17 is coming up on February 14th, Valentine's Day in Phoenix, Arizona. There's still time to register. You'll find information about both of those on the homepage at greenbiz.com. Send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.